unique. You are holy. You're set apart. There's no one and nothing that compares to you. No one is like you. And I pray that we would live that way. And as we look at Romans 11 this morning, Father, the nations will sing. And they will praise you and they will come to you in your kingdom. Lord, it's because there is no other Savior, no other Lord, no other God that's like you. And Lord, may we come with a humbleness and an eagerness to learn what your saving purposes are in history. Because we're a part of that. And this is our glorious future that we're thinking, learning, studying about. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at where we're at. Where are we in Romans 9 through 11? We are getting, we are entering Romans chapter 11. And it's hard to believe. Now, you know, you think I'm crazy for going so long on this stuff. Uh, Paul asked one question at the beginning of Romans 9. 9-6. Has God's word failed? And he's still answering that question. Has God's word failed? Because Israel, so many of God's chosen people have rejected Christ. He's still answering that one question. I mean, I feel like we've scraped the Milky Way. You know, we've looked at the sovereignty of God in the past. We looked at the rejection of the Jews in the present. And now we're going to look at God's saving plan in the future. So look at your chart there. The mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. Uh, chapter 9, we saw His merciful majesty. Yes, God is sovereign, but man, aren't you thankful that in His sovereignty, He is merciful. We saw that. And then chapter 10, we saw that even though He's sovereign, we have a responsibility to share His message, to go on mission. And, and, and that missional message of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And now we're going to be in chapter 11, and we're going to look at the mystery, the merciful mystery. How does this all work together? How, how is it that, that God can choose Israel from all of eternity past, and yet they reject the chosen Messiah that they were all looking for, and then all these Gentiles come in, and, and how does this all work together? That's what we're going to see. It's all going to come together in chapter 11. The focus in chapter 9 you saw was divine sovereignty. The, the focus in chapter 10 was human responsibility. They don't contradict. They go together. We can't make sense of them, but we need to embrace them both. And then we're going to see in chapter 11, though, the glorious solidarity, not only of Jew and Gentile in the future kingdom of God, that they will be one people of God, but also the solidarity of how... Divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together to bring together God's purposes. The focus throughout has been Israel. But that doesn't mean, as we're going to see this morning, that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us. One of the reasons these three chapters are hard, I mean, obviously God's sovereignty is hard for us to grasp. But the other reason is it's a focus on Israel. And let's just be, let's just be honest that we as Christians are pretty self-focused. You know, if it doesn't help me with my marriage, don't talk to me about it. You know, if I can't, if it doesn't help me get through my present problem, I'm not interested in it. And that's not a healthy way to approach the Bible. You know, God's purposes are far bigger than me and you. 
It's, yeah, I know, it's shocking, Jackie, I know, it's shocking, but it's true, and we need to be reminded of that. And I, I, I just decided today, this is what we're going to, if I could title this message, it would be, who can, why should I care? Why should I care about Romans 11? I mean, you know, maybe I've already, you know, so brutalized you through this series that, you know, you've long since lost any, you know, interest. I, I hope not, because we should care, and, we'll, and I'll, I'll help you with this. So we've looked at Israel's past election in chapter 9. We've seen Israel's present rejection in chapter 10. And now we're going to look at Israel's future salvation in chapter 11. There's questions and objections. Paul's style is still this uh, diatribe, this way of asking questions and then answering them. And notice in chapter 11, the questions we're going to look at, uh, beginning with, is God's rejection of Israel total and final? In other words, we know he's hardened them. That's been clear in 9 and 10. But is that hardening permanent? And is that hardening complete so that the nation of Israel can be written off? Are those who are are those Arabs who are hostile to Israel? Are they right that that we ought to push Israel off the off the map into the sea? That there isn't a right for a statehood and a national entity of Israel. After all, if God has no future for them, why should I? Hey, these are relevant issues, and they're being readdressed and brought up again on the national level, and the tide is turning against Israel now more than ever on the national scene. There's all sorts of factors for that, but we're going to see that some of those factors is a misunderstanding of Romans 11. And so, is there a rejection of Israel that is total and final? Is there no hope for Israel's hard heart? Let me just say at the beginning, I hope there's hope because I had a hard heart before I came to Christ. And who can ever figure all this out? I'm convinced that it's not me after two chapters and headed into the third. Paul is still beginning each, each chapter with something very personal. We'll see that next week. But listen, the key to each of these chapters, if you'll just get your head around these things, first of all, in chapter 9, God's sovereign majesty and election, both of Jew and Gentile, God's sending mission and proclamation, and now we're going to see God's saving mercy. And he's going to bring this thing all together to where we fall on our feet before a, an awesome, sovereign, merciful God and just say, God, it's all about you. And it's all because of you that I'm saved. And because of that, I ought to be just worshiping you and I ought to be sharing with everybody I know. You know, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I came today, it was so beautiful today. But I came today and I don't do, you know, I'm going to do this more and I don't do this often. but. I was convicted and reminded to do it today. And as I drove through the neighborhoods of my to get from my home to this church, I prayed for all the many people who were sleeping. Sleeping on the Lord's day. Sleeping because, like Israel, they're blind. They don't understand what's coming in the future. Listen, that's the kind of heart that these chapters ought to build in us. A heart that says, people don't know Christ. I do, and I don't deserve it, and and I shouldn't be proud driving down this street because I'm going to church and they're not. I should be broken that I know the Lord and they don't. Can I hear an amen? Can I hear, yeah, I I can get that? So I hope you get that kind of heart, and that's what we need to see. That's what Paul's heart was. Well, here's what Romans 11 is all about. Simple question. Top of your notes. 
How has God rejected his elect people Israel? Has God rejected his elect people? Look at Romans chapter 11 and let's read verses 1 and 2. Because this, this, this is the focus of the entire rest of chapter 11. And here's what he says. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? When he says his people, he's talking about the chosen nation of Israel. Not just individual Jews, but the entire nation. And here's his answer. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And then here's verse 2. And here's the summary of everything he's going to say. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. See, here's the question. Can God reject his elect? Can God reject his elect? And then for personal application for us, should we neglect the elect? If, if, has God rejected his elect people, Israel? And, and he says, God forbid. So then the question is, are we right to neglect his elect? Are we right to just not care about Israel and to write them off? So, Let's look at this, and, and today I want you to see, first of all, a logical question. It's a logical question to ask, has God totally rejected Israel? And then we're going to see a biblical answer, and then I'm going to answer the question, why you should care. Why should we care? After all, any Jews here today, any physical Jews, you know, why should I care? And then hopefully that will launch us into our final study of chapter 11. So let's look at it. First of all, Paul's question is very logical. It's a logical question. Has God completely and permanently rejected his people, Israel, because they have so radically rejected the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's the reality. As we ended last week in chapter 10, as you can see the final verses, look at verses uh, uh, 18 through 21. We're going to see that Israel's rejection of Christ, it was radical. I mean, it was radical. And let's just see how radical it was. First of all, I want you to see that Israel heard the gospel and they understood what God was doing and they said, no, thank you. Don't want any part of it. They had heard and they had understood. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they, and the they there is the physical nation of Israel, have they not heard? And here's what Paul says, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's quoting Psalm uh, Psalm 19. And in Psalm 19, the reference there is not to the, the revealed word of God. It's to the, the stars in the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. And it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and their voice has gone out in all the earth. In other words, there's no place on this planet that you don't see stars. And in those stars, you ought to see the glory of God. And what Paul is trying to say here is, listen, the gospel has gone to the Jews as, as far and as widely as the stars have gone to all peoples. In other words, Israel had every opportunity to hear. And we know that. What did Jesus do? Jesus always went to the Jews. In fact, when he sent out his first missionary team, he said, go only to the house of Israel. Paul did the same thing, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Uh, Jesus' ministry went all throughout Judea and Jerusalem and even beyond, even into the areas of Gentiles, but the whole country knew. All the way up to Herod and Pilate, who was a Roman, everybody knew they heard. They were without excuse. 
Well, then the question becomes, well, did they not understand? I heard it, but I didn't understand it. No, look at verse 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? Did Israel not understand? Well, here's what Moses says. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That word contrary means defiant. See, they not only heard it, they understood it. And they not only understood it, they said, I don't want anything to do with it. And I'm going to contradict it and I'm going to fight it. And what did that result in? Crucifying. Crucifying our Lord. You know, there's no doubt they understood because what did they accuse Jesus of? Why was Jesus crucified? He says he's the king of the Jews. He says he's God. He makes himself equal to God. And he says the king of the Jews. And and there is why they condemned him. In their condemning of him, they condemned them. Now you say... Just how radical was their rejection? Well, let's take a look at it. Their emotional response, their emotional response to Jesus and to those Jesus was saving, the Gentiles he was saving, their emotional response shows just how radical their rejection. Listen, when you don't under, you know, well, let me, let me put it this way. Their passion shows just how much they resented and, and rejected what Christ was and what God was doing. Let me give you three emotions that we see. I just read those verses in, in 18 or in 19 and 20. Let's see. First of all, they were jealous that God chose to save non-Jews. They were jealous that God chose to save non-Jews. God says in verse 19, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Number two, they were angry that God revealed himself to the spiritually ignorant. They're like, hey, I'm jealous. They're getting what is rightfully ours. I know what's going on here. You're giving them what's mine, and I'm jealous. Not only am I jealous, but I'm angry. I'm angry because they don't deserve it, and we do. Number three, because he says, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Number three, hello? Number three, they were frustrated. Is that God? Is that a message? Okay. Number three, they were frustrated. He's calling and saying, you don't know how, how much they rejected me. Number three, they were frustrated. They were frustrated that God was saving those who were not seeking him or pursuing him. Now, let me notice what it says. I have been found by those who did not seek me. And they're like, you've got to be kidding. You're driving me nuts with this. I mean, we... What, what is going on here? And let, if you want to jot something down, you can jot this down. A works mentality will always be frustrated, even infuriated by a grace mentality. See, that's, that's what's driving this whole thing. What's driving this is, hey, we earned this. We deserve this. We have sought God. We have sought you. We have tried to live for you. We deserve this. And now you're giving it to the likes of them? I'm angry, I'm jealous, and I'm frustrated. But in in their anger, their jealousy, and their frustration, they revealed that they were radically rejecting God's grace. So, why did they do this? Number two, Israel was too proud 
of their self-righteousness to repent and believe. In, in these same verses of 19 and 20, we not only see these, their, their radical emotion, their, their radical, radical rejection in their, in their uh, emotional response, but we also see what they were putting their trust in. And let me show you three things, and I think you'll really get this, the feeling here. First of all, they were too proud of their own nationality. They were too proud of their own nationality to repent and believe in Christ. We alone are the chosen people of God. This is why God says, look, I'm going to make you jealous of those who are not a nation. So here they are. They're like, hey, I was born a Jew, and I can trace myself back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are God's chosen people. Salvation is ours. You don't get it unless you become a Jew. And God said, oh, you're a little too proud in that. And you're basing your salvation on who you are and your nationality and where you were born. And by the way, people still do that today. And he said, I'm going to make you jealous because I'm going to show you that I can make a people. What did Jesus say? I can make children of Abraham out of rocks. And by the way, that's what God does. He makes his children out of stone, hard hearts. And he miraculously gives you a heart to accept Christ and a desire to see Christ. And that's what all salvation is. So, number one, he says, uh, you're too proud of your own nationality. And then, number two, you're too proud of your own spirituality. We alone possess the true knowledge of God. He said, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to take a foolish nation. I'm going to take a nation that has their hearts darkened in sin. I'm going to take a people, pagans, Gentiles, who don't have the law of Moses who are confused and, and believing in philosophers and philosophies. They, they don't know the one true God. They don't know about Moses. They don't know about the prophets. And I'm going to make you angry with that because you've trusted too much in your own... You know, Here's the deal. I go to church and I own a Bible and I listen to sermons and I take notes. Therefore, I am a Christian. God says, no, that's not what makes you... A Christian. Number three, they were too proud of their own morality. They were too proud of the, their own morality. We are alone seeking to be right with God. This is where he really sticks it in them. This is where God really convicts them because he says this. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not even seek me. They didn't seek me. They didn't want me, but they found me. And I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That concept blows would blow a Jewish person away. You mean God is favorable to those who are as pagan and immoral as the Gentiles? You see, number three, the reality is this. Israel's disbelief led to disobedience that eventually led to denial and defiance. You see, in verse 16... It says of Romans 10, verse 16, but they say, but they have not obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That's disbelief. Now in verse 21, he ends by saying, I've held my hands out all day long to a disobedient. Disbelief is disobedience and disobedience over time leads to defiance. Now, I've said all that to say one thing. It's a very logical question to ask, has God rejected Israel totally and finally? I mean, for someone to respond like that, whom God has blessed so much, 
whom God has set apart, whom God chose out of all the nations to bring his son to. Isn't it logical to ask, has God rejected his people? Well, Paul's question about God rejecting them is very logical. And he asked it. I asked then, has God rejected his people? But I want you to understand, this is the same question from 9.6, Romans 9.6. Has God's word failed? Because here's the thing, while it's logical for God to have turned his back on a people who had so radically turned their back on him, it's impossible. Why? Because God had promised that they would be his people. And because God had chosen them from all eternity, because God has sovereignly chosen them. So while the question is logical, and it, deser- and, and it would lead to a logical answer, let's say from the Gentiles. See, here's the problem. There in the church at Rome, they were asking this question and coming up with the wrong answer. The Gentiles were walking around like this. <laughs> Look at them dumb Jews. Look at them spiritually. They, they said, we were the spiritually ignorant ones. I don't think so. We are the ones believing in Jesus, their Messiah. And because they have the nerve to reject their Messiah and we have the spiritual discernment to accept him, I think we can wipe our hands of them. After all, hasn't God? You see how this was coming up? And so in the church at Rome, there was this spiritual pride. Now listen, folks, let me, some of you are just kind of, you're gazing around here. Do you not understand that we look at unsaved people with that same type of spiritual pride? Do you not understand that we look at people and say, and that's why I'm saying, driving through my neighborhood, God, help me to understand that I am no better. Help me to understand that but for your sovereign grace, I would be sleeping in this. Building my life around my pleasures, around my priorities, around my purposes, and headed to an eternal hell if you had not intervened. And so the logical answer from a Gentile Christian might be, hey, look at their unbelief, their hard heart, and stubborn refusal. Look, but look at us. Even us Gentiles knew better to trust Christ. And then the logical answer from a Jewish Christian perspective might have been, hey, um, God can't reject them. I don't know what's going on. Or, or maybe even a Jewish Christian could have had even more pride. Why? Because they would say, well, the rest of my Jewish brethren are idiots. They deserve to go to hell because I am a true Jew. Or maybe they said, look, you Gentile Christians, you're getting puffed up. But Israel still got... So you see how there's division and there's strife, okay? And so he quotes when he says, God has not rejected his people... He's saying it in a way that we should say, no, no, no. God has not rejected his people, has he? And he's quoting a couple passages from the Old Testament where God says he will not reject his people. So here's the point. If you know your Bible, you're going to say what? Has God rejected his his elect people? You're going to say, no. But I'm still not clear on what's going on here. I'm still not clear. And so while the question is logical, the answer is biblical. So let's look at number two. The biblical answer. What is the biblical answer to the question? Has God rejected his elect people? The biblical answer is, no way, Jose. I hope that's not politically incorrect. That's just whenever I see this, by no means. 
Or as the King James says, God forbid. There, absolutely not. No way. God has not rejected his people. And he's not done it completely and he's not done it permanently. In fact, the rest of Romans 11 can be divided in, in, in real easy. Romans 1 through 10, 11, 1 through 10, God has not rejected his people completely. There's a remnant. Verses 11 through 32, God has not rejected his people finally permanently because someday they're going to be all saved that's the rest of the chapter it's not total it's not final it's not complete and it's not permanent there is hope and here's the one thing you want to write over chapter 11 and i have it summarized no one no one's sin including israel's is ever greater than god's sovereignty and can we say amen no one's sin including the nation, as radical as it is, as much as they should have known better, as much as God had been long-suffering, even that kind of radical rejection is never greater than God's sovereign mercy. God's saving purposes are greater than the sinful choices, choices, choices of people. Getting excited here. Are you excited? Yeah. God forbid that we get excited about studying the hard things of the Scripture because in the hard things we see the heart of God. Listen, if God can't save Israel, I would put to you that He can't save anyone. Because the bottom line is this. You and I were just as hard, just as insensitive, just as rebellious when you and I got saved. And to think that you weren't is to not understand God's holiness and how deep your sinfulness mind was. You say, well, I didn't understand that at 17. No, I didn't understand that when I got saved either because it was God's grace that gave me just enough insight into who he was and who I was for me to put my childlike faith in him. But let me tell you, when you walk with him, and you submit to Him, and you grow in Him, like Paul, you realize that God's holiness, you see more of it, you see more of your sinfulness, so that when the day you die at 80 or 90, you're like, I can't believe you saved me. Now, that's the biblical answer. Now, here's the question. Why should I care? So, my my motivation is to get you through the rest of chapter 11, and to the end of this series, by this question, why should I care? After all, we're not Jewish. Well, here's the short answer. You should care because you may not, you and I may not be Jewish, but we are just as sinful. We are just as sinful. I Listen, if God will break his promises to save Israel, then he can break his promises to you and I. You say, no, he can't. I'm eternally secure. Then let me ask you, what's that eternally security based on? It's based on God's promises. And if he broke them to Israel, and if their sin is great enough to cause God to reject them, then what makes us think that the sin that we commit on a daily basis isn't great enough to break God's grace in our lives? For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. By learning what Paul is teaching about Israel and how God is able to save this hardened and defiant people, this, this chapter is going to remind us that we were just as hard, just as blind, just as deaf, deaf and a, as they are. 
when we were saved. But let me give you the long answer. Let me give you four reasons why you should care. I just sat down. And I thought, okay, now what, what, what's, why? I'm trying to put myself, I'm out there, I'm working, I'm going through problems. And Chris is talking about Romans 11. Why should I care? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, a wrong answer to this question, has God rejected his people Israel, can lead to anti-Semitism. It can lead to anti-Semitism, just as is often done throughout church history. Here's the bottom line. For too many decades in church history, Christians like you and I have hated Jews, persecuted Jews, and the result of that, the most tremendous result of that in the 20th century, you know what it was, the Holocaust. Do you understand that Germany was a Christian nation? Do you understand that Germany had the gospel? And that many of those Nazis and many of those soldiers that perpetrated those things, not only against Jews, I understand, but it was still driven by anti-Semitism. While other people got swept up into it, it's driven by anti-Semitism. And they even used the Bible to justify the things that they were doing. You see, there's too many instances in church history where those who profess to be Christians have been anti-Semite. And that just means hating Jews. And for Christians, often hating them for theological reasons. And here's the theological reason. If God rejected them, why shouldn't we? Okay. See, for too often, the Jews have been labeled as a people Christ killers. Christ killers. They rejected their own Messiah who is our Savior. But here's the reality. We killed Christ. The Romans killed Christ. The Jews killed Christ. We all, you were there when they crucified our Lord. I was there too. Hurling insults, mocking him in our unbelief. Notice what uh, Barry Horner, it's a great book, Future Israel, Why Christian Anti-Judaism Should Be Challenged. Yeah, you read it right, Christian anti-Judaism. And here's what he says. Furthermore, with regard to Israel, we are not dealing with a doctrinal emphasis, all this doctrine we've been talking about, that has little relationship with significant Christian ethics. In other words, what a, a proper answer to this question, has God elected Israel, can determine your ethic. It determines how you treat other people. And here's what he says. Quite the contrary, as our study will unquestionably prove, the wrong perception of Israel and the Jews by Christians, biblically speaking, has produced consequences of horrific proportions during the history of the Christian church in all of its strands. Let me just say, uh, in relation to the Holocaust, and he goes on to quote one author who said this, all the literature... One reads on the final solution, which was the genocide extermination of the Jews, uh, European Jewry, leaves the clear impression that the pervasiveness of classical Christian anti-Jewish theology was a significant factor in the success of Hitler's program. Where it did not directly contribute to the support for Hitler's policies, and it often did, it created an apathy towards Jews that was equally decisive in permitting the Holocaust. The great majority of the German people did not actively support or actively oppose Hitler. They were indifferent. You realize today there is movement in this world to exterminate Israel, uh, all of its surrounding neighbors, nearly all of it, definitely Hamas and 
and, and, and uh, terrorist groups, they have one objective, to push Israel into the sea. And you know what we can do here in Christian America? We can twiddle our thumbs and we can look back and say, I'm saved. I know where I'm going. After all, they rejected Christ anyway. They're hardened. No hope for them. One German pastor during that time was a famous pastor by the name of Martin Niemöller who was imprisoned at Dachau concentration camp ultimately for standing up against Hitler. Uh, it's a camp that's outside of Munich, and when we took my dad to Europe, Gwen and Amber and I were privileged to stand right there in front of the prison cell where he was imprisoned at Dachau until the American troops liberated. But here's what he said after he was released and after he went on speaking to her. He said this, First they came for the communists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out. And sad to say, uh, Niemöller uh, was largely silent about the persecution and mass murder of the European Jews, and it was only in 1963, in a West German television interview, did Niemöller acknowledge and make a statement of regret about his own anti-Semitism as a Christian pastor. So here's what your notes say. God help us to care about what happens to his chosen people. Otherwise, we may find ourselves at war with God himself. Listen, I don't want to be on the wrong side of the Jewish people. Because to be on the wrong side of God's elect people is to be on the wrong side of God. Now, let me... Disclaimer here, that doesn't, the, the present nation of Israel is not born again. They are not redeemed. They are not acknowledging Yahweh, and they are not making their decisions based on God, you know, allegiance to God. So that means that they can make wrong decisions, and they can be abusive, and they can be murderous, and they can do all the things that lost people do. But I tell you this, I will not side with anyone against them in their overall right to be whom God is ultimately going to uh, save them and declare them to be, and that is a people. Are, are you getting what I'm saying? Listen to your news, folks. Listen to your news. This is all going on in the news right now. Second reason. It's related to the first one. We need to get this right. We need to care about Romans 11 because a wrong answer to this question, as God rejected his people, can lead to replacement theology. Now turn to your neighbor and say, I came here worried about replacement. I really, I, I came here today wondering, Chris, I'm, I'm tempted to be a replacement theologian. Please help me. Okay, I understand that. But listen, many and most of the theologians today who write Christian books and commentaries that that we would use at our church, that I would recommend to you, believe that the church has completely and permanently replaced Israel in God's saving purposes. And all I want you to see on this is this. The reason Christians become anti-Semitic often is because they wrongly answer this question, has God rejected his people? Because here's the deal. If God's rejected them, then why can't I? And if God's rejected them, why should I care? Are, are you getting... So there's a connection between these. 
And I'm going to show you as we, as we go through Romans 11. Well, do I need to do that? No, I don't. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Okay. Look at, I, I have one comment there by one uh, theologian that would believe that the church has replaced Israel. There's no future for Israel. And here's what he says. The church then as a whole, as the church then as the people of the new covenant has taken the place of Israel and national Israel is nothing other than the empty shell from which the pearl has been removed and which has lost its function in the history of redemption. Now, the implications of that are pretty tremendous. An empty, I mean, okay, ladies, how many of you have a oyster shell hanging around your neck or encased in a ring? No. What's, what do you do with the shell from which the oyster came? You throw it away. You don't preserve it, and you don't say, someday I'll put the pearl back in there, and it will be just like it was before, only better. Do you do that? No, you don't do that. You throw it away. See, here's the beauty of Romans 11. Yes, the beautiful pearl has come out of Israel with Lord Jesus Christ. But God has not thrown away the shell. It is a shell. It's dry bones. It's dead. Israel is dead. They're spiritually dead. We do not honor them because they are spiritually alive. We honor that nation because God has elected them. And he has a future for them. And someday he's going to take that dry shell and Christ, the pearl, is going to be put back in that shell. And that beautiful oyster is going to be more glorious and more wonderful than we've ever seen it in the Old Testament. But we should keep the shell around. We certainly should not seek to destroy it. Now, what's the big deal if God's chosen to replace? Okay, so here's you say, well, I could care less if anybody ever calls me a, a, a replacement theologian. Well, that's all right, but here's the deal. What's the big deal if God has chosen to replace Israel? Let me give you two reasons why it's practical and you should care. Number one, God cannot be trusted. If he's broken his promises to Abraham, then he can break them to you, and that's the connection between Romans 8 and Romans 9. God says... I foreknew you, I predestined you, I called you, I justified you, I'm going to glorify you. Wake up. Those are the same promises to Abraham. And if he's broken them to him, he can break them to us. Number two, the Bible can't be trusted. Do you realize? And, 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 you know, I'm so glad for our church. And so many of you have taken the challenge to read through the entire Bible, reading through it in 90 days, and you see these beautiful promises that you've never read before. See, the reason we don't care about the future of Israel is because many of us are largely ignorant of the Old Testament. But when you read the Old Testament and you see that God has very definite promises, I mean, He has very definite promises for the future. And if those aren't fulfilled, then what am I... How can I believe this book? Okay. Now... This is really cool. It won't be cool to you as much as to someone, a pastor or a Bible student. But uh, there's a, a two-volume commentary that cost an arm and a leg on Romans that is one of the premier commentary. And the guy's name is Cranfield. And this guy had the humility, which is rare among scholars, to say, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. I can count on like two fingers, him and another guy who I've ever seen publicly put in print after they published views said, I got it wrong. It don't happen very often. Here's what he says. 
I, and I confess with shame to having also myself used in print on more than one occasion this language of the replacement of Israel by the church. It is only where the church persists in refusing to learn this message of Romans 9 through 11, where it secretly, perhaps unconsciously believes that its own existence is based on human achievement and so fails to understand God's mercy to itself that it is unable to believe in God's mercy for still unbelieving Israel, and so entertains the ugly and unscriptural notion that God has cast off his people Israel and simply replaced it by the Christian church. These three chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, emphatically forbid us to speak of the church as having once and for all taken the place of the Jewish people. Here's what I say. God, God help us. God help us to care about what happens with his chosen people. Otherwise, we may have to repent and admit we got it wrong. And we don't want to do that. It leads to anti-Semitism. Number three, a third reason why you should care about Romans 11. A wrong answer to this question can lead to proud boasting, just as it did in the church of Rome. We're going to see in Romans 11, he's speaking to the Gentile Christians. And what are they saying? They're saying, well, we got this figured out. Them spiritual dumb Jews, they get what they deserve. Christ killers. Listen, there's enough people in this world saying inflammatory things against the Jews that God's church did not be among. And 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 and, and, and the proud boasting. So so what, what what's the point? God helps us to care about what happens to His chosen people, but for the sovereign grace of God, we would still be lost. Listen, this is all about humility. God in his sovereignty has saved me. And it's not what I, I didn't choose him. He chose me in Christ and enabled me to choose him. Therefore, he gets the glory and he can do that with anyone. And so number four reason why you should care about Romans 11 and is because a wrong answer to this question can lead to a man-centered work salvation, just as it did for the majority of Jews. Now, Romans 9, 10, and 11, I, I, I don't need to repeat all those verses. I have them listed there for you. Listen, in Romans 9, it's God's sovereign choice of us, not our choice of Him. Romans 10, does that mean I don't need to choose Him? Yes, you do. Romans 10, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. But in Romans 11, we're going to see again this is all of God's grace. God has temporarily, partially rejected his people so that you and I could get saved. We shouldn't be rejecting Israel. We should be saying, Lord, thank you. Because literally, in your judgment of them, you've opened the door of salvation to me. And who, who am I to close the door of salvation to them for the future? Are you with me? See, who are we to withhold the gospel to anyone? But listen, may I lovingly challenge you that every one of us, probably the majority of us, were silent this past week and maybe haven't wept in a long time over lost people. And you know what we're doing? We're closing the door of salvation when God has left it open to us. We should have a brokenness and a humility and a passion and an urgency to share the good news. Amen?
And if you don't have that, then ask God to give it to you. And begin to pray for it. And begin to to act on it. So here's the deal. God help us to care about what happens to his chosen people. We should have God's heart for the lost, especially his chosen people. So I I, I left you there with Paul's heart. It's, It's very interesting that at the beginning of each of these chapters, Paul takes these mighty doctrines and he says, they're moving my heart. And so I hope that you can see that. I hope that you can see that. You say, what's this mean for us? Well, coming up is Easter. And Easter is a great time for lost people to come to church. Easter is a great time to share the gospel. We have an Easter egg hunt. We're going to go out into the community after we get those names. And we're going to visit people. Listen, you want to get a heart for lost people? Then you come with us and go door to door to the people in the community surrounding this church. And you just say, God... Give me a heart for these. Give me a heart. Give me a heart for my neighbors. Give me a heart for my coworkers. We should care. Because here's the wonderful thing. God doesn't reject his elect, no matter how sinful they are. And right now, some of the most hardened sinners that you know, God has already elected them for salvation in eternity. You don't know it. I don't know it. They don't know it, and they won't know it until you and I share the gospel with them, and they repent and believe, and then they figure it out. Oh, oh, I was one of the elect. Some of you got some really hardened people in your life who are unsaved, and you're giving up hope, and you've stopped praying. And all I'm trying to say to you is don't give up. Don't reject them, because God doesn't reject his elect. You don't know if they're elect. Share the gospel with them and pray for their salvation. Amen? And it's good. So do you care now? Do you care about Romans 11? Can we finish strong in these last chapters? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we come. And we're just humbled and, and broken that you're, 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 you're so beyond our understanding. And you're so much beyond what we can figure out that we should just not try to figure it all out. We should just trust you. And love people like you love them. And reach out to lost people. Lord, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You have commanded that in Scripture. And I pray for your people who are a nation. And I thank you that in 1948 they became a nation. But Lord, the Middle East is full of strife, hatred, and anger. And you are the Prince of Peace. May you hasten the day when you will come and save your people, Israel. And may we as Gentile Christians in humility, and with faith in you, support the people of Israel, not blindly and foolishly, but certainly not in a way that would seek their destruction. God, help our government and our president and our Congress and our military to make wise decisions. And Lord, may you forgive us for our indifference and apathy to the lost. And give us that joy and that boldness that comes from your Holy Spirit. I pray it on all of us here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.